My name is Isabel Trick, and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. Welcome to our podcast series, The Global Month Ahead. Towards the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across GC to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the month ahead. You can expect a focus on issues with broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we will make sure you know more than your friends and your colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For this month's edition, we will focus on the APEC Summit, COP28, and a general election in the Netherlands. The leaders of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, or APEC for short, are going to gather in San Francisco from November the 11th to the 17th. APEC generally has a track record of fostering collaboration between its members, but a lot has changed since it was first founded in 1989, not least of all US-China competition, the war in Ukraine, and ongoing challenges to the rules-based trading system. So joining us to discuss the summit is Ross Nugent, a senior associate in our trade and manufacturing practice. Hi, Ross. Hello, Isabel. So let's start us off. Tell me, what is APAC and how does it differ from some of the other groupings in the region? Because there's quite a lot of them. Well, that's right. And it's not just another acronym for people to remember along with IPAF, CPTPP, RCEP and ASEAN. APAC in particular is a regional economic forum founded in 1989 just as the Berlin Wall was coming down, two days before it came down, actually. So it was very much a product of that time, what we now regard as the beginning of America's unipolar moment. And it was founded in Canberra to foster closer economic integration in the Pacific. And until recently, in reality, it served as a vehicle for the US to spread and uphold the rules-based trading system you mentioned. Its members include the US, China, Japan, Russia, Australia, and the ASEAN countries. And notably, it's open to all member economies in the region. Notice I didn't say member countries. And this allows Hong Kong to remain as an independent member, even after the British handover in 1997, and also allows Taiwan to attend meetings under the guise of Chinese Taipei, though it's not represented by its head of government like the other members. Its secretariat is headquartered in Singapore, but the host rotates on an annual basis. So last year it was in Thailand, the US, of course, this year, as you mentioned and it will be Peru next year. This grouping has come to account for roughly 60% of global GDP, nearly 50% of global trade, and 40% of the world's population. I appreciate that's an awful lot of statistics for anyone listening. But this remarkable size is its underlying strength, uh, but it's also important to stress here that it's its underlying weakness. On the one hand, it convenes some of the most decisive economies of the 21st century, like I mentioned, China, Japan, and others. But on the other hand, its membership is so large and so diverse, it's so often hard to find consensus or to achieve anything meaningful. The bigger the group, often the harder it is to find consensus. Certainly, the Asia-Pacific's counterparts in Europe could attest to that. That doesn't mean APEC hasn't achieved anything meaningful in its time. It certainly has. The group has delivered several trade facilitation schemes, for example, uh, which delivered real improvements, tangible improvements in customs processes and wait times at the border. This is often supported by capacity building in country, particularly helping emerging markets with their rollout of customs processes and formalities. Likewise, the group was somewhat ahead of the curve in 2012 when it published its environmental goods list, which promised to cut applied tariffs on 54 environmental goods to 5% or lower. Of course, the implementation of this agreement has been a bit mixed, to say the least, but the intention was certainly there at the time. 
some of APEC's impact has been indirect. So it's not all trade facilitation agreements and different partnerships. For example, in 1994, perhaps one of the most significant things the group ever did was promise to realise free and open trade in the Pacific by 2020. Certainly anyone listening will know 2020 has passed us by, but certainly in that time, average tariffs across the group fell from 17% in 1989 to 5.3% 2018. Though, of course, this is not directly attributable to APEC. Much of this happened independent of APEC, but its secretariat would certainly argue that it managed the political choreography that made these tariff reductions happen. So two key questions going into this summit in San Francisco. One is, can APEC still achieve things when mistrust between Washington and Beijing runs so deep, chronically deep? Can the US set the rules of the road in Asia whilst keeping market access off the table? Can it still uh, manage to set the terms of trade in the Asia-Pacific whilst keeping the prize of market access from its partners? And this is something that lots of international organisations and groupings that I imagine you talk about in the podcast are struggling with, whether it's the World Trade Organization, the G20 or the development banks, all of them are working to prove why they are still relevant in this kind of post-Cold War economic consensus that has now broken down. You're kind of doing my job for me. You're already asking all the interesting questions, but let's quickly recap. We've got an organisation here representing 60% of global GDP, and it includes not just countries, but economies, which allows for Hong Kong and Taiwan to participate. Both very interesting um, aspects here. And I also like to point about cohesion because we have seen this about BRICS enlargement, for instance. The larger you make some of these groups, the harder it is to find cohesion and to find agreement. And you've touched on some of the achievements and some of the indirect impacts already. So I guess with the US hosting this year, the host often has the agenda setting um, abilities. So is there a specific US agenda going into this? What is the US hoping to achieve in San Francisco later this month? Well, the US has chosen creating a resilient and sustainable future for all as its theme this year. This is an umbrella theme. I wouldn't expect parties at the summit to actually all uh, attend to that theme. But this will be an important moment in America's foreign policy calendar and indeed the Pacific's foreign policy calendar, given 60% of US exports are actually bound for APEC markets. It's quite a significant figure. And seven of its top trading partners are also in the group. So it is a significant moment for the US to be hosting, particularly at what has been a low point in US-China relations. So it's an important moment to signal to allies as well as to make some progress on the diplomatic relationship with China. But perhaps most importantly will be the US Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPAF, another acronym, I'm sorry, which was launched last year. Of course, IPAF is not housed within APEC. We shouldn't mistake the two, and countries like Russia and China are not participating. But many of these participants do overlap. And an IPAF ministerial will take place on the sidelines of the wider APEC summit. So that is one to watch. I think anyone listening should bear in mind there will be an IPAF and APEC summit happening concurrently later this month. Well, for context, IPAF is one of the Biden administration's non-traditional economic initiatives in which the US is not offering market access, as I mentioned, but is attempting to establish standards for trade in the region, as well as develop early warning systems for some sensitive supply chains. And it's comprised of four pillars, trade, supply chain, clean economy, and fair economy. And from what we know, the White House has privately viewed the APEC summit as a soft deadline for the conclusion of some of these pillars. In fact, the US Trade Representative Catherine Tai recently confirmed that several IPAC-related announcements will be made on the sidelines of APEC. So we know something is coming. 
there is hope some countries could agree to language around the third and fourth pillars of the framework, which touch on clean energy, anti-carbonisation, as well as anti-corruption. The trade pillar is probably too far a bridge for a November consensus. It's probably too big of an ask to reach a conclusion on trade, given some of the thornier issues around sustainability, digital and labour rights, and talks on the supply chain pillar were largely concluded in May this year. So we're more looking at clean energy and decarbonisation as well as anti-corruption, not so much on trade, not so much on supply chains. Separately, the US will be keen to reassure allies that it can remain engaged with the wars in Ukraine and the Middle East, as well as maintaining a forward posture in the Indo-Pacific, that it can do all of these things simultaneously. Because many listeners will remember when the Obama administration attempted its so-called Asian pivot, which was ultimately distracted by the Arab Spring and the Russian annexation of Crimea. So Biden wouldn't be the first US president that becomes distracted from the Asia-Pacific. Some in the Pacific, and indeed Washington, view crises in Europe and the Middle East as strategic distractions, drawing the US away from its critical interest in the Pacific Rim. So Biden will want to stress that that's not the case and that the Pacific remains a priority, even if not the immediate priority. I would say that sounds like quite a challenging agenda. We're possibly going to see some announcement on some of the IFF pillars. You said clean energy, decarbonisation, anti-corruption, maybe less so on trade, but certainly sounds like the IPEF, uh, even though separate from APEC, is going to be one of the ones to watch the ministerial there. And I also just wanted to repeat that stat that you mentioned. 60% of US exports going to APEC countries is really, really very noteworthy. Maybe focusing on one specific country there, um, because we've had a flurry of diplomatic activity between Washington and Beijing over the last six months, and especially over the last few weeks, that has been really uh, hotting up of the question, is President Xi going to attend? Do you think there's going to be any breakthroughs at the APEC summit on the um, Washington-Beijing front? Well, that is the big question. A Biden-Xi meeting would probably be the set-piece moment of the summit, and you're absolutely right. American officials, and indeed some Chinese officials, have been laying the political groundwork for such a meeting. We've seen the likes of the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, as well as the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, visiting Beijing in recent months. And of course, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, is recently there, though perhaps not on federal business. Uh, But these trips have been designed to do two things, particularly following the spy balloon incident earlier this year, which threatened to derail the relationship. Firstly, the administration wants to keep lines of communication open and has warned that the relationship is at risk of spiralling. It's currently very sensitive to news cycles as they see it. So they want to put a floor under the relationship when the next misunderstanding arises, as it inevitably will. I think that's a given. Secondly, the administration wants to reassure allies uh, and what we now call geopolitical swing states or polyamorous uh, states in the world that it's not pursuing decoupling. The US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has been very keen to stress Washington's preference for de-risking. But of course, the Commerce Department recently tightened export controls and is also working up along with the Treasury, of course, in the lead, an outbound investment screening mechanism. So I think the administration is trying to find a coherent framework in which to explain its approach to China when you have mechanisms on the one hand that will restrict trade, but on the other hand, keeping diplomatic channels open. So both sides have set up diplomatic channels to address some specific issues in recent months, such as on export controls, commercial issues and wider strategic concerns. And allies will certainly be seeking assurances, implicit or explicit, that Washington's de-risking strategy will not take them too far outside of their 
comfort zone. On the Biden Xi meeting specifically, China's Foreign Affairs Director Wang Yi was recently in Washington in late October, where he met with Anthony Blinken, Jake Sullivan and President Biden himself, actually. And of course, Wang did not drop any hints as to whether the meeting will happen for sure. But he did say preparations are underway, although qualifying that by saying it's a long road to San Francisco, uh, putting it in quite profound terms. There are some reasons to suggest, though, that it will go ahead and it will be a significant one if it did. First, I think that there is some alignment now between Washington and Beijing on expectations that perhaps there weren't in uh, November of last year when Xi and Biden met in Bali for the G20 summit. They perhaps at this point understand that they're not going to have any massive breakthroughs to answer your question or any dramatic improvements in relations. So they both have pretty aligned expectations on what can and cannot happen. Second, leaders in both countries, for their own reasons, see a benefit in capping the tensions where they are now, capping them at their current level and not allowing this to spiral, as I mentioned. A, you have a Chinese economy that is uh, facing significant turbulence at the moment. You also have President Biden, who, as I said, is being redirected to the Middle East, whilst also keeping one foot on the Ukrainian issue, does not want to open a third front, as it were, with Beijing. So the political choreography is there. Both sides want to be seen as the adults in the room. And from a US perspective, given its, its economy is still somewhat significantly larger than China's, it has a, it has a re- good reason to appear magnanimous should Xi appear in San Francisco or indeed Washington later this month. Well, I very much like that phrasing. It's a long road to San Francisco and we've got a lot to look forward to while we walk it. The meeting, if it does happen, is absolutely going to be significant. And with the focus on avoiding the relationship spiraling further, that's going to be an absolutely crucial one for us to watch. So thank you very much, um, Ross, for, um, for spending this time with us and explaining all of this to us. Thanks. No problem at all. We have just five weeks left until COP28 starts on November 30th. As I'm sure you all know, the COP summits are the most important international climate conferences, where from across all the world, delegations come together to discuss how to limit climate change, as well as how to adapt and prepare for future climate change. This year, COP is taking place in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, and arguably, this is the most important COP since Paris. It's the global stock take, where countries look at the progress that has been made so far and decide what to do next across the core issues of climate finance, mitigation, and adapting to the impacts of climate change. To discuss all of this, I have the Practice Director for the Climate and Sustainability Practice with me, Lorna Ritchie. Hi, Lorna. Hi, Isabel. So, Lorna, let's start us off. What do you think we can expect from this COP28? So, as you said in your introduction, this year is all about the global stock take. So, it's about understanding, has the world managed to make any progress since the Paris Agreement was set in 2015? And we saw earlier this year, the Global Stock Take report was published. Unsurprisingly, it showed that the world was off track to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. And this means basically we're not on track to keep global warming within 1.5 degrees. There's not enough climate finance that's been mobilised and countries aren't being sufficiently supported to adapt to the impacts of climate change. So we've now got a situation where governments have to use the COP this year to discuss how can we correct this course? How can we make sure that we are on track to meet these goals? And increasingly over the last couple of years, we've seen significant focus on the role of the private sector and their capacity to mobilise private finance. But this relies on significant movement from countries themselves. So we need more support 
from governments to set up financial mechanisms to enable private sector finance to be channeled towards these aims. So things like carbon pricing and carbon market, those are really crucial for supporting the private sector to engage in this process of mobilised finance. And so this is something the UAE really needs to deliver this year to make progress in this area. And it looks at the moment like it's unlikely that the UAE will achieve progress on carbon market. The other area that the UAE presidency has been focusing on is this commitment that we saw at COP26 two years ago to phase down coal. So there's been ongoing discussion over the last two years about whether this ambition can be increased and maybe perhaps phase out all fossil fuels or commit to actually phase out coal by a particular date. It looks at the moment that that's incredibly unlikely, that that will be something that will be achieved by COP28. Um, And we have seen from the UAE that they're going to focus instead on building support for a pledge to triple global renewables. Interesting. It sounds like quite a challenging backdrop. So not only do we have the report that has essentially said we are not on track, there are these two big deliverables, carbon markets and commitments to face down coal. And as you say, it seems like the UAE presidency might struggle to deliver across both of them. And simultaneously, we do have that increasing pressure on the private sector, which maybe particularly poses the question for companies and for the private sector, like how should they engage at this COP? Or if there is this question around how much the UAE is going to be able to deliver, should they engage with this COP at all? We frequently get this question from companies that we talk to. And in a word, yes. Yes, you should definitely engage at COP28. That is not true for all COPs, but for COP28, it is a very significant COP, arguably the most significant, like you said, since Paris. Um, And COPs are really where climate policies start their life. So most of the Green Deal package that was produced by the EU started life as a COP commitment, whether that was to disclose or align private sector finance with Paris commitments, or so you get the task force for climate-related financial disclosures. All of this starts in this COP process. So it's a really good opportunity for companies to engage with policymakers as they're designing these policies. And this year in particular, we're seeing a very strong focus on the role of the private sector. So we can expect that, for example, there'll be much closer, the public areas of the the conference centre will be much closer to those areas where you have negotiators, which will enable more collaboration between the two. Um, And we'll see much more emphasis on private sector commitments. Um, So this year is a really good opportunity. Next year remains to be seen. The presidency hasn't been agreed. It might just be a German COP where there is no presidency, in which case there might be a kind of procedural process, in which case there's very likely to be not much engagement with the private sector. But this year is definitely a good opportunity. I think it's fascinating, like you say, that we don't actually yet have an agreed presidency for next year and that Germany might just step in as a sort of placeholder. So um, I would agree um, it's now or never. And if you want to miss out on um, being there when things like the Green Deal package um, start start their life, then I guess stay away from COP28. But surely, I imagine you want to be there. And you have highlighted that the, um, the UA presidency might struggle to make progress across carbon markets and face down on coal. But do you think there's going to be areas where where there will be progress? Pre-COP is happening today. So we're now in the final four weeks, believe it or not, before we have COP28. 
And uh, pre-COP is where ministers get together and try and iron out as much of the details as possible. So they agree on the agenda in theory and they talk about some of the most challenging issues such as phase out of fossil fuels. This is happening today and yesterday. So far, reports on the discussion suggest that UAE has been struggling to reach more consensus around phase out of fossil fuels. But contrary to popular belief, COP doesn't happen in just those two weeks. So it's really, really important over the next four weeks that the UAE presidency builds commitment from countries and brings them closer together so that we can have agreement before we actually get to COP. Because you can't at COP get 196 countries to agree on absolutely every single word. So it's really important that the UAE presidency builds this commitment beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. I think that pre-COP period is absolutely vital and it sounds like the discussions and negotiations at pre-COP are going to be crucial for making sure that um, we have some interesting outcomes by the time COP itself rolls around in a, in a few weeks' time. Maybe just before I let you go, I'd be curious to touch on a final point because the Israel-Hamas conflict has dominated so many areas of the work we do here at GC. And I was wondering whether you think, um, giving especially the, the proximity Do you think the conflict is going to impact on COP itself? That is a really interesting issue and one that we've had um, inquiries from from a lot of companies that we work with, concerns over stability in the area. We've heard rumours from some that they've heard that COP might be cancelled. We ourselves are fairly confident that COP won't be cancelled. At the moment, there doesn't seem to be any risk of overspill. It is worth monitoring um, the situation if there's there could be more generalised unrest in the region. But at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any signs of that. In terms of indirect impacts on the discussions, geopolitical tensions generally make getting agreement between all countries increasingly difficult. And we've seen that over the last few years with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and it's led to more divisions between developed and developing countries than we have seen previously. And In the last year, we've seen an unprecedented reshuffle in negotiating groups, which could really shift the dynamics in discussions this year. So this is the first COP where the UK will join what is called the Umbrella Group, which essentially contains a lot of developed countries like the US, Australia. It did contain Russia, but now they've swapped out for Ukraine. And this group has historically not been as progressive as some of the other developed country groups. And this also means that the UK is, for the first time ever, not in the same negotiating area as the EU. And in fact, the EU and the Umbrella Group often take very different stances, particularly on things like, at the moment, fossil fuel phase out in the negotiations. So that will be a really interesting one to watch. And then we've also seen the Brazil, India, China, South Africa, or BRICS group has also added six new emerging economies. And this could be, again, this changes the dynamics in the discussions and could really lead to some interesting outcomes at COP itself. So this is the first time we've ever seen this sort of reshuffle of negotiating groups, which have been in place for, for a very long time. So it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out in the discussion themselves. This shift in negotiation groups is absolutely fascinating. Like you say, we certainly don't see that a lot. And this changing dynamic means this is going to be an interesting one to watch. Hopefully it's going to be a fruitful discussion, despite the geopolitical tensions that will take up a lot of airtime, a lot of political capital. But we're going to be close by. I know you are going to be in um, in Dubai itself with some of our colleagues. So um, good luck, Lorna, and thanks very much for um, for joining me today. Cheers. Thank you.
This is an absolute watershed moment for the country. It's the first election in more than 13 years without Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte taking place after his government collapsed this summer. And this means that we're actually seeing elections two years earlier than we would have ordinarily expected otherwise. To talk about this, I have Alexander van der Wusten with me. He's a senior associate in our Europe team. Hi, Alexander. Hi there. Hi, hi Spill. So Rutte leaves behind a country that has, under his premiership, on the one hand, maintained its international standing and its European profile, but it's also a country that domestically is facing quite a bit of significant discontent about the state of public services and, as elsewhere in Europe, concern about the economic outlook. So, Alexander, what would you say is at stake in these elections? What are the big, the big issues a new government will have to focus on? Hi, Isabel. Thank, thanks very much for getting me on the podcast, first of all. So, yeah, as you rightly said, so a watershed moment, a new faces, a new government after 13 years of, of, of Rutte and being in charge as prime minister. So definitely, I would say three things at stake in consultant fashion. So three, three main points. First of all, the current housing and nitrogen uh, crisis. Just for context, the Dutch government plans to slash nitrogen emissions in half by 2030. But it is struggling to agree on policy to do this without alienating completely the agricultural sector and other quite important constituencies. Meanwhile. Construction companies, factories uh, or farms, they, they need to obtain permission for polluting beyond the legal limits with a promise to make up for it later. That is increasingly harder to do. This, this means that uh, many thousands of businesses are now effectively oper- operating illegally and the government is really scrambling to come up with a, with a viable solution to, to keep things uh, running without uh, nitrogen emissions uh, going up. And yeah, so no solutions, so no, no proper solution has been found. So the new government would really have to really have to tackle this. And this is obviously an important debate uh, that we now see in the elections. Uh, the second thing is, yeah, the green agenda. So broadly, the current government was aiming at an ambitious uh, 60% CO2 reduction target by 2030. Uh, to, this, to this end, the cabinet also presented a supplementary climate package uh, earlier this year. But there are still significant disagreements about how to fund this, which technologies to prioritize. And yeah, these discussions will flow over into the, yeah, the next government. We obviously see already some of these debates playing out in the election debate. And finally, the third thing, um, this revolves around improving public services and yeah, probably regaining trust. Uh, so this is really one of the main election themes. And yeah, also again, some background on this. So we saw quite important political moment. So a few years ago, the government fell after the, this was the third uh, Rutte government, uh, fell after news broke that thousands of low and middle income families were falsely accused of, of fraud by the tax authorities in the, yeah, in the 2010s. And they were asked to pay back benefits, which they apparently had obtained completely legally. So yeah, this together with yeah, several other incidents which includes yeah, the underperformance of, of healthcare facilities, problems in child and youth care. Yet these things have created a often quite justified perception that public institutions are underperforming. Yeah, this could be partly seen as a legacy of the era of austerity, you know, so the, the result of, of slashing public service provision in the early 2010s. So just when Rutte started in his, in his first government, basically discussions we now also see play out in the UK, obviously ahead of the 
general elections. So it's up for the new government to start with a, with a clean slate, uh, so to say. So this is, I would say, a third big item in the, in the current election. Interesting. So a nitrogen crisis, um, which is currently making it quite difficult for businesses to meet legal requirements. The green agenda, how to fund it and what to focus on. And public services with a particular focus on the benefit and youth and childcare systems. So certainly um, a lot to be covering. And we've mentioned now that this is going to be the first election in a long time without Margarita. But who is going to be the new face of this government or who are the new faces of this election campaign? Because we've seen both newcomers, we've seen some old faces. We've seen Franz Timmermans, the former EU commissioner, making a comeback in the Netherlands and now leading a new coalition of Greens and Labour. So what are the dynamics in the election? Who's leading? What possible coalitions do we see? Who are the big personalities here? Great. Yeah. So we definitely now see three clear frontrunners. So currently leading in the polls um, is the effectively Rutte's successor in, the, in the, his People's Party for Freedom and Democracy. So this is the current Justice Minister, Dylan Jezilgus. She's followed by uh, Peter Omtzigt, uh, one of the oldest serving MPs in, in the, the Dutch House of Representatives, who recently launched a, a new party, the New Social Contract. And he is really one of the key people who advocated for, for an improvement in, the, in, the, in, in public services. And so he's the one who has, so to say, uncovered this child benefit scandal, the, the situation with the, the low and middle income families that were falsely accused of fraud. He's the one that brought this to, into the limelight, so to say. Very important political figure now. Yeah, and thirdly, Franz Timmermans. So as you said, leading now a new coalition of Labour and the Greens. But it is unclear, obviously, whether he is the one who will yeah, gain the most votes and be able to kind of start negotiating a, uh, a possible new coalition. So just when looking at the numbers, it seems that, just judging by the current polls, that Jezilgeus and Omzix will be part of a new coalition. So it's, it's, it's clear that Omzix is uh, willing to either govern with Jezilgeus or Timmermans. But if he opts to go into a coalition with Rutte's party, now led by Jezilgeus, in that case, it is likely that they would exclude Timmermans. So they'd be able to form a coalition likely with the, with the farmer citizen movement or some smaller right-wing parties, though that is unlikely. But it will still be a coalition dominated by Rutte's party, but unlikely, as I said, to include Timmermans. Uh, alternatively, so yeah, if Timmermans, who is now yeah, effectively in third place, manages to become the biggest party, he will be the first in line to start coalition negotiations, to uh, start, yeah, to attempt to form a new government. Uh, but he will find it quite hard to do so. So as, as, as you might know, so in the Netherlands, it's a very fragmented political landscape. We currently have, I believe, more than 20 political parties in, represented in parliament. In order to get the majority, uh, Timmermans would likely to have to enter a coalition with Peter Omtzigt and several other parties as well. But that would be uh, yeah, a, a big, quite potentially unstable uh, government. So yeah, there are a lot of questions uh, around that. Okay, clearly a complicated party landscape. Three frontrunners, uh, Justice Minister Jezilgus, Peter Omtzigt and his new party, and Timmermans and his new uh, Labour Greens coalition. 
with multiple uh, coalition options there, but certainly quite a daunting task of forming a stable coalition, regardless of who comes out on top. And maybe turning to kind of the policy platforms of these different parties, what are some of the policy priorities and what does this all mean for businesses looking at the Netherlands from, from the outside? It is obviously in the end, so the way it works in the Netherlands, that, that parties will to negotiate a common policy platform. So in the end, some of the individual party stances, uh, so, so what we see in the, in the kind of individual policy or party programs is kind of might come out like in a sort of muddled way. We'll, we'll see a reflection of that in the final coalition agreement, but will be a compromise in the end. So obviously hard to judge. But yeah, so if we, if we take these two scenarios, so firstly, if we assume that, so the first option, so a coalition with Rutte's party, now led by Jezelkus and, and Omtzigt, if we assume that they will enter a coalition, we are likely to see a... Um, yeah, more or less a continuation of the of the current Rutte government. So center, right of center, possibly a bit more restriction uh, restrictive on, on, on migration issues. There was obviously a big agenda item which also brought down the, the last Rutte government. And possibly a, a bit of a less ambitious green agenda insofar as possible within the kind of like set parameters and then the European context. But yeah, the, these are this is likely what we will see coming out of that uh, coalition. So alternatively, so a, a possible coalition center, center of left, led by uh, Franz Timmermans. So we will see potentially still again kind of the continuation of the current ambitious green agenda. There are disagreements on how to exactly execute that between Omzicht and Timmermans. So as I said, it will be in a way an unstable coalition. There are quite a lot of uh, disagreements on on, um, on when it comes to, 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 to green and climate between Omtzigt and Timmermans. But at least both are aligned on increased investments on, in, in public services. There's a way forward for, for, for them to, to, to continue working. But I would say these are, these are kind of, this is kind of the, the, the broad outline. Okay, so it sounds like two broad possibilities. Either policy continuity, if we do get this right of center, centerish uh, coalition government between uh, Rutte's successor, Jezelgus, and Peter Omtzigt, tough on migration, less ambitious on the green agenda, or this more unstable and might take quite a bit longer to agree coalition agreement on a, more on a centre-left, including Timmermans and Omtzigt and others, which might be a bit more ambitious on the green agenda, but also might see some increased public services investment. Before we finish, I'd like to quickly zoom out and look at the Netherlands more in the European context. Do we expect um, the new government, I guess the two big possibilities, where, how do we expect them to behave in Brussels? Do we think there's going to be a story of policy continuity here? Or is there any big chance that either of these two coalitions might break with the status quo? I would say that whatever the coalition is going to look like, there will likely not be any openly EU hostile parties in there. We've seen in the kind of throughout the 2010s that there was pressure, especially kind of from the, the, from the far right opposition to sometimes, you know, to, for the government to take a more EU skeptical stance. But yeah, currently the, 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 the far right is, is quite fragmented. So a lot of votes are going to the new faces like Omtzigt and um, yeah, and still also Rutte's party. But yeah, kind of broadly speaking, I would say that, that in, in either case, it, it will be kind of broadly a continuation of the, of the previous governments in, in many respects. 
um, especially with um, uh, the Omtzigt uh, Jezelgeus coalition. So obviously we'll see a kind of a, a coalition that will be still dominated by Rutte's party. So likely we'll, we'll see uh, we'll see still uh, the same kind of uh, Dutch position on many issues on the in the in the council and elsewhere. Uh, a return of of Timmermans to Brussels uh, in the new uh, role as as Dutch Prime Minister would obviously you yeah also see a continuation with the Netherlands. I mean, would still be a kind of a broadly reliable partner in many respects. Obviously, the interesting thing is that if Timmermans uh, would become Prime Minister, he, he would in a way be far less powerful as, as than he was as executive vice president in the commission. So he will be restrained by his coalition partners, still likely to push on the on the green agenda, but less able to do so effectively than is in his previous uh, commission role. Lots to look out for, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's going to be good news for anyone that we shouldn't expect anyone of these two coalitions to include any openly EU hostile parties. I think anyone would be slightly scared of the prospect of a Red Wilders uh, type personality um, in, in government. But also it will be very interesting to watch, I think, any kind of big Europe watchers who will who would be interested in seeing Timmermans adjust to this new role um, on the EU level as Prime Minister of the Netherlands. I think that would be absolutely fascinating. So let's, let's watch and see. It's not just going to be the election date that's going to be important, but it's going to be that long coalition negotiation process to watch afterwards. And we're going to keep you updated and see what happens. Thanks very much, Alexander. Thank you. On this note, we are at the end of this episode of the Global Month Ahead podcast. And we're clearly looking at a very interesting month of November. We will see leaders gather in San Francisco for the APEC summit, with the possibility of a Biden and Xi meeting. We will have the most important COP since Paris, COP28, take place in Dubai. And we will have an election in the Netherlands that we'll see through one coalition or another, the first Dutch government in 13 years without Margrethe. As always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of what we discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find the contact details for our presenters and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you to Ross, Lorna and Alexander and thanks to you for listening.